According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 3. Join me in Hebrews chapter 3. And uh, we're looking at some Old Testament quotations here, mostly starting with Psalm 95. In fact, all of it, Psalm 95. Uh, verse uh, 7 through 11. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 is roughly comparable to Psalm 95, 7 through 11, as far as that goes. And um, we have an application to be made here, an application to learn from the Exodus generation. And that's what David was trying to accomplish when he composed Psalm 95. He wanted his generation to learn from Moses and the Exodus generation. And so he wrote what he wrote when he said, "'Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart.'" as when they provoked me. And that was David writing those things in the composition of Psalm 95. So in his day and age, he was pointing to Moses in the Exodus as the example for application. Likewise, the author of Hebrews does the same thing. He quotes David's uh, psalm, and he does the same thing for us today. Let's look back to Moses in the Exodus, and let's draw our application, because we have the greatest accountability uh, of all as New Testament believer priests. And so that's that's where the impact of that comes. All right, so therefore, Hebrews 3, 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon the Father to humble us, that we might be in fellowship, we might be equipped to receive eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you yet again today, day after day, as long as it's called today, and here we are. Father, I thank you for the daily emphasis that's found in the book of Hebrews. I thank you for the daily emphasis in this very passage. Today, if you would hear his voice. And Father, I thank you that we have this privilege. None of us earned this or deserve this. Who are we that we should be brought into your counsel? that you should explain yourself to us. We're not entitled to that. We haven't earned that or deserve that. No one can. And yet we are in your Son, and your Son is worthy of all things. So I pray as we come in His name, Father, that you would look upon us and that you would bless us, that you would reveal yourself to us this day. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us ears to hear. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we deal with it here, I think um, the bulk of what we've been dealing with in these recent couple of Sundays all came out of verses 7 and 8, and I'm not uh, going to repeat uh, any of that just uh, because of our time, and communion Sunday is always short anyway. Um, but just recognize that this is what it means to, uh, to be considering Jesus. And, and really what this chapter introduces is who we are in the church age as believer priests, who we are in our priesthood. I say many times, Hebrews is Leviticus for us. 
okay? This is our Leviticus. And uh, whereas uh, if you were an Old Testament believer priest, if you were of the Levitical tribe and of the sons of Aaron and you were serving uh, in Israel in the Old Testament times, then Leviticus would be your worship manual. That would give you the who, what, where, when, why, and how for all your sacrifices and your feasts and your offerings. And, and what you do as, a, as an Old Testament priest, they found that in Leviticus, right? In the law, but Leviticus specifically. You and I are not Levites. We're not Aaronic priests. We're much higher than that in the sense that uh, you know, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and we are a Melchizedek priesthood. That is, we are in Christ. And that's what gets developed in these chapters, starting here in chapter 3 and moving on through the book. And that's why the chapter begins, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. That was not true for Old Testament saints. They were a holy people, but they were not partakers of a heavenly calling as we are. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. See, that's our confession. We're church age saints. That's our confession. We're not Old Testament saints. And, and that, ha- that makes a big deal. That's a big deal for us today. But think about the impact that would have had if our suspicion is correct. And the main recipients of this letter were, were former priests, that they were the ones described about there in the early chapters of Acts when considerable number of priests were listening to the gospel and were crossing into the church age. All right. So um, to have a confession with Jesus as the apostle and high priest is extraordinary. And that's what we deal with here. And then all of this then, one through six, Christ faithful, Christ being faithful presently as a son over his house, whose house we are. Right? We're not the tabernacle, we're not the temple, but we are a temple. And this is what we are in the church age. That's what the house here is. It's the temple that we function as when we're saved, when we're in fellowship, when we're walking in the light. Now, if you go carnal, you're still saved, but you're no longer the house of God. You're no longer the house of God. God does not allow something unclean to come into his house. And so if you're carnal, you're not house of God. You've got to do the labor routine. You've got to cleanse, be cleansed from all unrighteousness. You need to 1 John 1, 9. That way you can be restored to fellowship and resume your duties, resume your housework in the house of God. And that's what the book of Hebrews teaches us to do. So uh, that's if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. It's very contingent. Serving in our priesthood is very contingent on these ifs. If we don't hold fast, if we don't stay faithful, then, uh, then we don't function in our priesthood. See, that's what we lose, not salvation. All right, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. If, if, choose to be a hearer of the word, you have ears, so use them. Hear. There's a reason why you have ears. They're to listen with, okay? And uh, he that has an ear, let him hear. Jesus used it. John used it. Here, uh, the author of Hebrews is using it. He's actually ripping off David from Psalm 95, okay? By the way, uh, when you glance, take a peek over to chapter 4 and verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before. That's our only clue that David is the author of Psalm 95. All right, Nowhere, you go back and look at Psalm 95, it's not labeled. Uh, the Septuagint identifies it as Davidic, but not the Hebrew manuscript. Um, 
I don't accept the Septuagint as God-breathed and inspired, but Hebrews is. And so when Hebrews 4.7 says that David is the author, uh, then I'm fine with that. When the book of Acts says that David is the author of Psalm 2, I'm fine with that. Even if the Masoretic text, Hebrew text of Psalm 2 does not list David. All right. So um, do not harden your hearts. Don't do it. Any command God gives is a command you can do, but He's telling you not to. That's key, all right? A believer can harden his heart. And I know I've debated that. People will deny that and say, well, no, not if he was truly saved. Yes, a believer can harden his heart. The author includes himself in this warning. The author includes himself repeatedly through the book of Hebrews that any one of us can fall short of the rest God has provided. Likewise, uh, other warnings that come in verse 12, right? After we get through with the, the Psalm 95 quotation as a warning in verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you. He's calling them brethren. He called them holy brethren and partakers of a heavenly calling. And yet some of them can develop an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from a living God. And that's what we have to study when we get to the warning of verse 12. For now, though, I want to move on to, we're still in 9 and 10. So let me get the slide synchronized there. And we're continuing through the Psalm 95 um, narrative, the day of trial in the wilderness, where, so how long was that day? Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. That's a long day, (laughs) okay? And yet it's called here the day of trial in the wilderness. Not just a single event. It's not just pinpointing Meribah. It is actually the course of the entire generational discipline until such time as the next generation arises and they get warned not to repeat the, uh, the hard-heartedness of their parents. Uh, so they tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. The anger of God, the hatred of God are fruitful studies. And I said, and, and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. Now these things become important for us when we study what happens uh, in the unbelief of a believer. What happens when someone who's saved by faith stops walking by faith? Do they stop being a redeemed people? Of course not. Every one of these Jewish people was still redeemed. They still walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They, not one of them went back to Egypt. When I read verse 11, it does not say, as I swore in my wrath, I'm going to repart the Red Sea and push them back through into their uh, slavery in Egypt. None of them returned to Egypt, not one. Because understand the doctrine, understand the principle, understand the pattern being set there. Not one church-age saint who falls and fails to enter into the promised rest is going to lose their salvation. That is not a threat in the book of Hebrews. The threat, though, is we're going to die in the wilderness, that our experience is going to be a dead walk, failing to enter into the rest that He's designed us for. And so as a redeemed people, we are not going to enter into the promised rest that awaits us. So uh, here's what we're dealing with, all right? Where your fathers tried me by testing me. Notice, your fathers, your fathers, the uh, 
the intimation, of course, being that these are Jews receiving this letter because those were their fathers. Uh, that intimation is slightly mitigated by the fact that this is a quotation from Psalm 95. So when David was writing to Jewish people, he rightly said, your fathers. When the author of Hebrews is writing to these people, because he's quoting Psalm 95, I, I think you don't want to stake too large a case on the fact that he calls, uh, the, he calls them their fathers, uh, although I think that they were. Nevertheless, the Exodus generation tempted the Lord by testing him. They tempted him by testing him. And it's, it's a curious thing because we often do word studies between perazzo and dokimazzo, and we realize that tempting is one thing, testing is another. That God himself cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. But Satan is the tempter. And temptation always has as its goal our downfall. Perazzo tempting is designed to bring somebody down, whereas dokimazo testing is designed to validate with approval the proof of, of God's grace, the proof of God's work. And so often we will distinguish those words. This passage is interesting because it combines both of them, yeah, that they tried me, that's perazzo, by testing me, that's dokimazo, and they saw my works for 40 years. Now, we can go back and we can see not only the quote from Psalm 95, which we've been doing, we did that last week, we can also see Numbers 14. I would also want to add to that, it's not on the slide, but I would, I would want to add to that um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if I forget, don't let me leave this slide without taking us to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's start though with Numbers 14. Make sure we're clear on this uh, setting. Remember in chapter 13, spies have gone into the land, 12 of them, one per tribe. And uh, Joshua from his tribe and Caleb from, from his tribe. And then uh, 10 <laughs> characters, I tell you. And they come back afraid. And they come back and rebel. And, uh, and Moses pleads with them. And so, anyway, we're familiar with the story. There's Nephilim there in chapter 13 that makes the Jews look like grasshoppers. And uh, we've done those studies as well. But for this morning, I think, um, if there is, <laughs> verse 11 of chapter 14, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. See, when God performs works, He expects that we're going to pay attention, that those signs are going to be the evidence uh, upon which then believers can operate, can exercise their faith. And yet they would not do it. I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. So He tempts Moses, He tests Moses in this way, and says, stand back, Moses, I'm going to blast these people to smithereens. I'm going to start over with you. And I'm going to make a new chosen people. And they're all going to be mosaic. Okay? And Moses says, God, you can't do that. And this is a tremendous faith test for, for Moses. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. 
And, uh, and here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, you could not bring them into the, nation, into, uh, the land you promised them. Uh, verse 15, now you say, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them. By oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now there's a lot of doctrine that goes into that, but the logic's inescapable. That, that okay, he was able to redeem them, but he just couldn't get them into the land right? Because the land was populated with giants and there's Nephilim and so forth. So okay, yeah, you can rescue them from Egypt and yeah, you can part the Red Sea and yeah, you can bring them out, but you couldn't get them into the the, the land filled with giants, into the land of Canaan. And that's what they're going to say. That's the criticism that's going to be leveled against you. That's the fake news that they're going to be highlighting on uh, different news networks. Okay? But keep in mind, though, God maintains His testimony. He defends His righteousness. And and as we bring this forward to our application, is there not a parallel fear that, well, yeah, He's the God who's able to save me, but He's not able to keep me saved? (laughs) He's able to save me, but He can't take me into the rest that He's designed me for? Of course He is. We can achieve the rest on the same basis that Caleb and Joshua said they could attain their rest. God's doing the work. We're following where He's leading. And then we enter into His rest. Are there giants along the way? Big deal. God's bigger than the giants. He'll take care of that too. Because this is what He promised us. So the fear is not losing salvation. The fear is not entering through the conflict into the land of rest. That's not dying and going to heaven. That's today operating in a mature faith rest life. All right. So... um, Moses pleads, and this is, later on Moses will fail this test. It'll be a stand back, I want to blast him test. And the third time Moses faces it, he fails. Moses steps aside says, okay God, go get him. But this is one of the earlier times where Moses passes the test and he pleads and he intercedes. Um, So uh, verse 17, now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. See, he's cycling doctrine. He's quoting scripture. He's, he's putting prayer, he's putting verses into his prayer and telling God what he can do, what he can't do. Not because Moses is sovereign but, or because God's sovereignty is impaired, but because God has made these statements in his word and God holds himself to his own standard. Pardon, I pray. So he confesses. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. You know, if He's redeemed us, how will He not now freely give us all things? How can He not forgive us now? When we confess our sins now, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Why? Well, look what He's already done for us when He redeemed us, when uh, He gave His Son to die on our behalf. And so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. I have pardoned them according to your word. So He responds to Moses' prayer. God interacts with our prayers. And he gives credit to Moses' prayer as the basis for his gracious pardoning. But indeed, as I live, we talked last week about vows and oaths and adjuration and things like as I live, right? Cross my, part, uh, cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Cross my heart, hope to die. As I live, that's a vow. That means if I don't do this, kill me. As I live. Here's the God who cannot die, who takes an oath based upon as I live. 
Think how powerful that is. All the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. This promise of rest is centered on God's desire to glorify His Son. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. See, today if you would hear His voice. They saw His signs and they did not believe. They saw His signs and they tempted Him. They shall by no means... This is like the negative version of Shirley, right? Surely you will die. This is by no means. They shall surely not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Of course, Caleb and Joshua will be permitted. So that's the, uh, that's the issue. The Exodus generation, they tempted the Lord by testing him. And he, 10 times, how, how much did he put up with? How much did he put up with? And when, then what did he finally say? See, there's a giving over. There's discipline, there's discipline, there's discipline, and then God says, all right, that's it. You're not entering the land. There is a giving over, and we don't want to experience that giving over in our Christian walk. This testing slash tempting took place despite ample testimony to God's loving kindnesses. And you see that in chapter 14. You see that in chapter 15. We see that again and again. Let's go to Exodus. And it's curious to me because in my pride, I want to say, well, if I had been living in the days of, the, the, of this generation, I would not have, you know, and then Jesus would be rebuking me like he rebuked the Pharisees in last hour's message. Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31. Again and again and again, they see, they see this. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. So there's a testimony right there. When they cross the Red Sea, they get to the other side, they watch the waters come crashing down, they see the destruction. And that should be the same for us. We should be walking this Christian experience on the basis of having seen what God already did the day He saved me. And I never want to lose sight of that. I don't want to be saved so long I forget what it, what it meant to be saved. Harder when you're uh, saved younger and you weren't exactly the... You're still a sinner saved by grace and uh, so forth. Some sinners have more spectacular stories of the life they led before they got saved. My four-year-old rebellion was not nearly as spectacular, but it was rebellion nonetheless, absolute rebellion nonetheless. Chapter 15, chapter 15 and verse 13, in your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed in your strength. You have guided them to your holy habitation. This is what we call the Christian way of life. We are a redeemed people. We are being led by God. And we must follow that leading. That's what the whole wilderness wandering illustrates for us. We want to follow His leading, not uh, to a land of promise, which is not heaven when we die. It's to a place of, of, metal, of mature faith rest. We should have it here and now. Many of us do. Others are wondering, what's that about? How do I get that? Verses 22 through 27. So Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Well, that didn't take long. 
three days. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah means bitter, good name for a place with bitter water. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? You know, well, do you think God has a plan? Look what he did to redeem you. Look, where, look how he brought you out. Look where he's taking you. Why is he taking you here? He knows what he's doing. You just don't like it. <laughs> so uh, there it is. So he cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree and threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. That's the order. God tests us. We don't test God. God proves our faith. We don't prove God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is absolute, eternal, infinite. And who do I think I am to judge the quality of God's faithfulness? He does not answer to me. And yet, that's what they do. So um, he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God. So this is an if, okay? This is like the if we were looking at in Hebrews 3. We're going to have a lot of ifs in Hebrews. Whether we're going to be the, the temple or not, whether we're going to function in our priesthood or not, is, is very much an if. Are we going to be humble and listen to God? Are we going to live in the light? Are we going to walk in the light? Are we going to stay in fellowship? If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 78 palms, and they camped there besides the water. Wow. I guess that's a better spot than Mara. Okay. Look at that abundant provision. But all it takes, again, if you're a redeemed person and you're walking through the wilderness, don't grumble about it. Just go to the Father and ask. Listen to what He tells you. Do what He tells you to do. Go where He tells you to go. And, uh, and if he takes you to a Mara, well, then endure it and thank him. But if he takes you to an Elim, then enjoy it and thank him. He's still the same faithful God in either place. All right, so those are the verses there. Where was it we have to go before I leave this slide? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Thank you. Yeah, I'm older now. My memory's not what it was. That's scary, though, because my memory was terrible. All right. You know, we cannot put the Lord your God to the test. And uh, and it just seems that this is, this is it. So in Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy second, Namas law, it's the second time to give the law. Moses is repeating uh, Exodus and Leviticus for the sake of the, of the second generation now, and they get it now in, in Deuteronomy. And uh, this is a powerful commandment. Uh, they're commanded to listen. Uh, verse 4 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, right? The great Shema. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Uh, these words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, bind them aside. So this is, this is taking law, now investing it in this new generation. And then when you get to the land, 
You can continue to walk by faith. Uh, it shall come about, verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you swore to your fathers. Um, all this good stuff, didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. Okay, That's the picture of what that land represents. It's not redemption. People try to make that redemption. No, the Red Sea was redemption. This is, this is faith rest. Living in the land of promise. Living in the land of the blessed. All right, And even there, watch yourself. Verse 12, watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now, whether we're in the, the, the wilderness trying to attain to the faith rest maturity or whether we're already in the faith rest maturity, we still have to watch ourselves and not fall. For the Lord your God, and don't follow other gods, okay? The gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. It's one of His attributes. If you have an essence box that doesn't include jealousy, um, modify your essence box. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. And, the purpose for my side trip is verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massah. Okay? Now, they didn't. Their parents did. But He tells them they did. And there's a reason for that, all right? Because they identify corporately. They are Israel. They are now this generation of Israel. The, their parents were them a generation ago. Okay? Now they are them in this generation. Their children will be them in the next generation. And they shall not put the Lord their God to the test as they did at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and statutes which He has commanded you. All right, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You see, realize, even once you make it into that promised land of mature faith rest, even still, there are occasions which will keep you from enjoying it, keep you from fully possessing it. They'll even have a national exile where they're driven out of their own land for 70 years. So, uh, these are all patterns in typology for our application, and the book of Hebrews does a marvelous job to, uh, to show that. Now understand, the author of Hebrews is saying here, God displayed His faithfulness for 40 years. He displayed His faithfulness for 40 years. This is the consequences of a people who were accusing God of not being faithful. <laughs> How long does it take to learn this lesson? Well, for them it was 40 years, right? Because, see, they were accusing him of, of leading them into the wilderness to kill him. That, well, the only reason you brought us out of Egypt is to bring us into this wilderness to kill us here, which is ludicrous. It is absolutely stupid, right? Don't carnal people say stupid things, right? I raise my hand. I mean, in carnality, you say things that you would never say in fellowship. But the idea that God brought them out here to kill, how dumb is that? He could just dump the Red Sea on them if he wanted to. Yeah, he parted the Red Sea, they were all walking through. If he wanted them dead, or he could have just killed them in the plagues he sent on Egypt. Kill them any time. He didn't bring them out here to kill them. That's ludicrous. So they accuse him of not being faithful. That he's not going to give them the land that he promised them. Or that he can't. That he made a promise he couldn't make good on. Right? He promised you eternal life. He just wasn't able to keep you saved. That's a pathetic God. How pathetic is that? 
Okay? Of course he can keep you saved. If he can't keep you saved, he couldn't have saved you in the first place. So he displayed his faithfulness for 40 years. Understand, when God makes a thorough and comprehensive display of his faithfulness, human rebellion becomes proportionately more offensive. Proportionately more offensive. Because they had been shown so much, they were expected to respond, and their rebellion was that much more severe. They were more accountable than the Egyptians. The Egyptians saw ten plagues. Israel saw ten plagues. And then as a redeemed people, they saw faithfulness for 40 years. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle for 40 years. And with that increased observation, testimony, comes increased accountability. To whom much is given shall much be required. You and I have a greater accountability than the Old Testament saints. Because we have an Old Testament which describes how they blew it again and again and again. So we're far more accountable than they ever were. Plus we've got a New Testament. Plus we have the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Plus we have the position, possession, blessings that belong to every one of us by virtue of union with Christ. Were you listening last Sunday night? All right, that was the class last Sunday night. All right. A couple of passages on this, including one from Hebrews. Let me grab that one first. Hebrews 10. It is a severe punishment. It is proportional. Exodus or Ezekiel takes longer to set up, but Hebrews is... Uh, we're in Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 10. And, and this chapter is setting forth a proportion. Whatever that proportion is. What is our accountability? What is the church's accountability in contrast to Israel's? Is it 2 to 1? 3 to 1? 10 to 1? What, what's that number? A thousand to one? I think it's infinite. I mean, goodness. So, if we go on sinning, if we go on sinning willfully, so we are a redeemed people. We're saved. Right? Verse 19, we're saved. We are brethren. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We're saved. We can enter into the Holy of Holies. That's something that a, no Jew could do. Only the high priest one day a year. We get to go into the Holy of Holies all day, every day. So we, um, we hold fast the confession of our hope. That's verse 23. Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You realize when we bail on that, we're calling him unfaithful. When we decide to abandon the Christian way of life, when we walk away from our priesthood, that's a, an attack against the faithfulness of God. So we, he who promised is faithful. And we're not going to forsake rapture doctrine. I think verse 25, not forsaking rapture doctrine. Our episynagogue, our assembling together in the air, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the rapture drawing near. I see it drawing near. I, it's got to be this year, okay? Be, beyond the joke of it, this is uh, this world is just Persia is dedicated to nuking Israel, and God won't let that happen. All right, I think we are rapture ready. Then the warning. So context: this is church age believer application, okay? If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. We can expect judgment if we don't conduct our Christian walk according to the Word of God. And we can, ex- we can expect a worse judgment than Israel. How much severer punishment, right? Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if you've got a lawbreaker, you know, that guy that went out to gather firewood on the Sabbath, on the very first Sabbath after they get the Ten Commandments, <laughs> you know, you get the Ten Commandments and on Sabbath one, you're out there picking up firewood, okay? It was stone, no mercy there. Without mercy, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? That's what you do. Your willful carnality is stomping on Christ. Trampled underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant. Yeah, yeah, he poured out his blood for you. We're going to observe that today. We're going to commemorate that today in communion. You realize that your willful carnality, rejecting the word of God as a believer is far worse than any unbeliever. God expects the unbeliever to reject the word of God, of course. Their foolish heart is darkened. They're, they're unsaved. That's what they do. But that's not why he saved us. And for us to regard the blood of Christ as unclean, to stomp and to trample on Christ, you have insulted the spirit of grace. What, do you think it's okay now because you're saved by grace? you think it's okay now because all your sins are forgiven? you think it's okay now because you have eternal security so you can do whatever you want to do and still go to heaven when you die? Think again. The doctrine of eternal security is a goad for diligence and godliness. Because if you want to live in open defiance of the Word of God, wrath is coming, okay? God's severe punishment. So how much severer? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so there we have it. That's our motivation. We get accused of it all the time. Oh, you know, you preach grace, they call it cheap grace. They say, oh, you teach eternal security? Oh, you know, and so we're all just a bunch of of lascivious, uh, licentious, you know, live however you want to live and go to heaven anyway kind of, kind of people. And not, nothing could be further from the truth. It is proportionate. How much severer? Now the example in, in Ezekiel is different. Um, and we can grab that as well. Ezekiel 16. Um, the southern kingdom should have learned from the northern kingdom. There was 150 years after the fall of um, Samaria, after the northern kingdom was swept away. The southern kingdom then had an opportunity to learn and to apply and to not do what their older sister did. And so the message is given as if a couple of sisters are being uh, disciplined. And the older sister is Samaria, the younger sister is, is Jerusalem. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay? And so if you're a younger sister and you watch your older sister doing foolish, stupid things, you know, sinning and making, you know, I mean, we get that, right? We get that if there's an older sibling that's 
facing consequences for their sin. And then a younger sibling looks at that and goes, ooh, I don't want to do that. Okay? But see, sometimes though, so sometimes they're warned and sometimes they're edified and sometimes then the youngest siblings are very, very much blessed to be warned about the, the, the behavior and to, to be godly and keep short accounts. Uh, in other cases though, <laughs> the uh, younger siblings learn the wrong stuff and they learn how to be sneakier about what they're doing and they learn to be more creative about the stuff they want to do anyway. And really that's what happened here because the younger sister did not learn from the older sister and Jerusalem's sins were worser than worser were worse than Samaria's sins. All right. I mean sure the northern kingdom set up a, a couple of golden calves. <laughs> Aaron set up a golden calf, the northern kingdom set up two. Talk about doubling down, right? But but they yeah, they had some pagan idol worship and, and that. But the southern kingdom defiled God's temple. Okay, that's far worse. Anyway, verses 1 through 14, I, I won't read the whole chapter to you, but it's, um, it's, it's tender as it's written because God said, you know, I remember the day you were born. I remember when you were born and they didn't even cut the umbilical cord. And you weren't even washed off, and you weren't even clean, you weren't even wrapped in cloths, you were just a, a throwaway. But I took care of you. No eye looked with pity on you, but I did. I, I, I looked upon you with compassion, and, and you were thrown into the open field, and they abhorred you, but I saw you. I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood. That's verse 6. I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. And there's symbolism in that. It's a great message. And I made you numerous like the plants of the field. You grew up, became tall. You reached the age for fine ornaments. See, you grew to the point you start wearing earrings and makeup. And, and uh, your breasts were formed. Your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. Okay, that's a problem. Younger it was okay, but eh, now, uh, now we gotta, we got to start dressing like the young lady you're becoming. And uh, then I passed by and saw you. Behold, you were the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you, covered your nakedness. I entered into a covenant with you that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Of course, they got married much younger back then. Uh, Nevertheless, I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you. I anointed you with oil. And I also clothed you with embroidered cloth, put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. That's an amazing thing since they were in the wilderness. Where were the dolphins? I wrapped you with fine linen, covered you with silk, adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, a necklace around your neck. Verse after verse after verse after verse of everything Yahweh did for Israel. So with greater displays comes greater uh, accountability, proportionally more offensive rebellion. He didn't do this for any other nation on the earth. No Gentile nation received the care that Israel received. Put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, beautiful crown on your head. Julia was different back then. (laughs) Culture was different back then. All right. And your fame went out. Nevertheless, so that's all great until you get to verse 15. 
Uh, but you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. This is parallel a few chapters later with Satan himself, okay, who corrupted his wisdom by reason of his splendor. You poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You want to? Great, let's do it. And here's Yahweh, their husband, who had done all this for them from birth. And so beyond that. Anyway, you can read the rest of the chapter. I won't take the time, but it's, it shows you it's proportionate. It's uh, comprehensive, especially when uh, there's two girls involved and then the, the younger should be learning from the older. And uh, uh, it's a thing that comes not only here in chapter 16, but then there'll be more in um, later chapters as well. Anyway, we'll let that go. Back to Hebrews then, verse 10. Therefore I was angry with this generation. They said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. Therefore I was angry. So is God capricious? Does he just trigger on different things? Do we have to placate him and make him happy like a pagan God? What is the nature of God's holiness that triggers love and triggers anger? What is the holy anger of God? There's nothing carnal about this anger. And what causes God, I think it's a grace thing, that causes God to deal with nations on a generational basis. I find that interesting. So therefore I was angry with this generation, the ones that He redeemed, and said they always go astray in their heart. They did not know My way. So if they're always doing this, you know, they were idol worshipers in Egypt. He didn't redeem them because they were doing so great. They were idolaters when they were in Egypt. They brought their idols with them out of Egypt. When they were walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, they had idols with them in their baggage, in their property. They took their idols with them into the wilderness. So he wasn't saving them because they deserved it. They always go astray in their heart. So... Um, I find it interesting. The anger of God was applied generationally. And we see the same thing uh, in Old Testament, in the New Testament. We see it applied uh, in, in the generation that crucified the Christ. We see the application there. We see the generation that went into captivity uh, under Nebuchadnezzar. We see a generation that he'll be dealing with in the tribulation uh, that's promised this generation uh, the tribulational generation is the one that will see the coming of the kingdom. They're also going to see the, the wrath of Antichrist. So God deals generation. I think He does the same thing today. He deals generationally today, which is fearful. <laughs> okay, um, As far as that goes. Based primarily upon Israel, hard-hearted ignorance. You know, ignorance can be remedied. But hard-hearted ignorance is intentional. And when you choose to harden your heart, and therefore you don't know what you ought to know, that, uh, that's a trigger on the wrath of God. That will spark anger. Now just plain old, can't help it, ignorance, God can fix that. He's got prophets and pastors and teachers, and He's got you know prophets in the Old Testament, pastors and teachers today. He's got, um, he can, you know, we can fix ignorance. But hard-hearted, willful ignorance, 
that's not an information deficiency. That needs repentance. That needs to have a change of heart. Only then can any learning really take place. And so um, Psalm 78 illustrates this. You know, you think about God dealing with generations. There's, there's a coming rapture generation. I pray we are the rapture generation. But there, um, God does deal with generations. His anger forbears to the third and the fourth. And that's where he stops. He is slow to anger. But that doesn't mean he's never to anger. Slow to anger gets there. And when it does, you don't want to be there. <laughs> you don't want to be a generation four when the wrath of God is being applied to the children of wrath, to the third and to the fourth generation. But of course, chesed, loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love me. Psalm 78, 40. Psalm 78 really is a walk through the Bible. And um, we'll let the first 39 verses go for now. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God. The one they were told, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But again and again they tempted him and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day which he redeemed them from the adversary. Remember the power of God that saved you. That's the power of God that's going to sustain you today if you obey and if you walk with him. When he performed his signs in Egypt, his marvels in the field of Zon, and turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them, the frogs which destroyed them. So you see, what's he doing? He's giving here this reminder of where they were and how he brought them out. So verse 52, he smote the firstborn in verse 51. Then he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. So the same faithfulness of God that redeemed them is the same faithfulness of God that led them that, that then brought them into a land. He led them safely so that they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. So he brought them to his holy land, to this whole country, which his right hand had gained. Not them, not their human effort. God did the work. He also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance. God did the work. We're going to learn that. The secret to faith rest, God's doing the work. If you think it depends on you, there's not much rest in that. There's no rest in that. Faith rest means God's doing the work. Yet they tempted, in verse 56, yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. But they turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. So, um, anyway, just read through the rest of this. You're going to find uh, part of the consequences when they go off into their captivity. Comes application there. How about Genesis 6, 5 and 6? God deals with generations. This generation should not follow the uh, Exodus generation. Genesis 6, 5 and 6. Here's the flood generation. By the way, it depends if you, if you prefer the Septuagint dates or the Masoretic dates. When you're going through the numbers of, of, uh, of Genesis 5, I think the Hebrew manuscripts are corrupted and the numbers are 
uh, are off by 100 each, each time, and so the Septuagint actually preserves the more accurate numbers on these men. But in any case, Noah is, if, on the shorter sequence with the Hebrew numbers, Noah is the first generation that doesn't know Adam. All right? And that may have a, a significance. Um, of course, it's longer, it's stretched out longer than that on the Septuagint dating. But Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And this obviously is, leads into the flood. But this is what this generation is about. See, except for Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, that's verse 8. By the way, do you think that includes Mrs. Noah? Do you think that includes Ham, Shem, and Japheth? Uh, I don't know. Rabbis debated it. <laughs> okay. You think Mrs. Ham, Mrs. Japheth, Mrs. Uh, Shem, um, like Mrs. Noah, you know, were they all believers? I suspect they were, but I can't prove it from that verse. It's curious. But God deals generationally. Uh, he brings them through and He says, all right, if you're 20 and over, you're the Exodus generation. If you're under 20, then uh, you're not the Exodus generation. And... Uh, you can enter into the land when he cuts that off. Generational dealings are seen throughout Scripture. Genesis fifteen sixteen, the promise is made to Abraham that his descendants are going to descend into Egypt. They're going to be slaves. But in the fourth generation, he says, I will bring them out. Exodus 1, 6, we see generational dealings in the birth of Moses. Numbers 32, 13, we see more generational dealings Deuteronomy 7, 9, more generational dealings. You'll have to look all these up on your own. Um, we're going to have Sunday school classes here in a moment, and then we're going to go to communion. Of course, Deuteronomy 7, 9. This is uh, going to be featured in my Houston presentation. No, therefore... That the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. A thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commandments. Acts 13, 36. With reference to David. After he served the purpose of God in his generation... See, uh, Psalm 16 is not about David. Psalm 16 is about the Christ. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And what, what Paul preaches here is, guess what? David wrote that, but David's decaying. He didn't write that about himself. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But the purpose of God in his generation... Think about it. God deals with nations on a generational basis. So on this generation, who is God lifting up? 
Do we have faithful pastors for this generation? Because God deals with generations. I know who the faithful pastors were in the previous generation, but they're, they're getting old and dying and leaving. And Who do we have for the coming generation? God deals with nations on a generational basis. As I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So next week when we come back, we're going to look at verse 11. And we're going to detail uh, another vow. As I swore in my wrath. Why is God swearing? The God who cannot lie is taking vows. And the God who cannot die is taking vows based upon his life as I live, <laughs> declares the Lord. You know, And he uses this language in a very extraordinary way. And so we're going to find out about God's wrath and how does God's wrath undo redemption? Of course not. So what does his wrath do when it uh, rejects us from our rest? That's what we got to deal with. All right, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this message. Continue to bless these students as we proceed in these studies. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to sing a communion hymn as the classes are brought in. We're going to sing a communion hymn and then uh, prepare for the Lord's table.